right, well, good evening, everybody. How are you all? Good to see you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 21? Exodus 21. Now, last week, we finished chapter 20, and with it, the uh, Ten Commandments. And from that point now, God is going to be giving various laws regarding various subjects. And the first laws he gets into after the Ten Commandments are laws regarding slaves and slavery. Now, before we get into this section, let me talk about the Bible and slavery for a minute. There are those that um, blame the Bible, uh, and in particular, the laws of Moses for slavery. However, slavery existed long before the Bible, Israel, or Moses. In fact, Spurgeon, and many echo what he said here, but Spurgeon said, and I quote, Moses did not institute slavery in any shape. The laws concerning it were made on purpose to repress it, to confine it within very narrow bounds, and ultimately to put an end to it, end quote. Guys, we must remember that even though God accepted slavery as a part of the uh, ancient cultures of the world. Uh, he made sure his people never practiced it in the way the pagan world did. It's interesting to me that the first thing God did is he was giving his laws to his people that governed their personal and national life. The very first thing he did before he gets into these laws in chapter 20 verse 2 was to remind them that they themselves at one time were slaves in Egypt. Now, no doubt he did that because he wanted them to remember how terribly they were treated uh, when they were slaves in Egypt, how he delivered them out of their cruel bondage after many years of them crying out to the Lord. And the idea being that they were never to treat their fellow Hebrews the way they were treated by the Egyptians before God delivered them. That is the background for this section which starts out with laws against or laws governing, I should say, uh, slaves and slavery. Now, it is true, and I want you to think about this for a minute, that uh, from, from our cultural perspective, after the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, you would have expected God to abolish slavery altogether. Now, in his wisdom, he doesn't do that. And we're going to see why in a moment, okay? Uh, he allowed certain forms of servitude, but only under his strict, listen, his strict guidelines and regulations. One historian said, and I quote, without ever defending the practice of slavery, the Bible assumes that some form of servitude will continue, yet it transforms the institution by carefully regulating the relationship between master and slave in ways that eliminate abuse and ultimately cause slavery, or at least slavery as we know it, to disappear, end quote. Now, that in the wisdom of God was the, exactly the way God handled slavery in New Testament times. You remember reading uh, Paul's writings. And, of course, slavery was very common in the first century Greco-Roman world. It was said back then there was like something like 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And they were bought and sold just as easily as a piece of furniture and treated very badly for the most part. And so when Paul shows up, and he's ministering to Christians. The churches were made up of slaves and free people. 
At one point, he says something to the effect, if you are a free man, don't seek to be a slave. If you're a slave, don't seek to be free. In other words, the, the issue was flourish wherever God has planted you and just be a light right there. Now, Paul took a lot of heat from people over the centuries uh, because uh, he didn't come down on slavery. He didn't really voice his opposition to slavery. This also was the wisdom of God. You have to understand something. If Paul would have led a um, revolt against the Roman Empire to abolish slavery, it would have plunged this very young church into a bloodbath and probably wiped it out. So in God's wisdom, what he did was he didn't have his people come against slavery. What he did was he told masters, look, these slaves that are Christians, they're your brothers. They're your sisters. I mean, yes, they belong to you, but as Christians, you're all the family of God. Therefore, you are to respect them. You are to treat them kindly. He elevated the role of a slave to that of a master. And what happened to slavery eventually? It just dissolved. Because the church under... Same with our country, by the way. Do you know why there were so many abolitionists in America that fought to do away with slavery? Because as Christians, they, they read how that God says, you know, treat others as you would have them treat you. And they thought, well, I wouldn't want to be a slave. How can I love my brother and treat them the way I would want to be treated if I'm going to have slaves? And that was the thing that began, God began to use to then abolish slavery. You have to understand something. As Americans, and we tend to look at Scripture from our cultural context. And as Americans, when we think of slavery, we think of it in the context of the slavery in our country that led to the Civil War. And guys, certainly that slavery was more like the slavery that the Jews experienced in Egypt. It was a harsh and cruel bondage. We need to understand that the servitude God allowed in Jewish culture was vastly different, though, than the kind of slavery and servitude that blacks were subjected to in the Deep South a couple hundred years ago. That was horrendous. It was wrong. But it was not the kind of servitude God allowed in Jewish culture. Back in Moses' day... And again, think of the cultural context the Bible was written in. Back in Moses' day, when a man couldn't pay off a debt, or maybe his crops failed, what recourse did he have? How was he going to pay his debt? How was he going to provide for his family? I mean, if he couldn't pay off his debt, he didn't have any recourse like we have. He couldn't file for chapter 11 or chapter 13. In ancient cultures, what happened was oftentimes, if you owed creditors money and you couldn't pay it, they descended on you. Whatever you had, they took it, and then they took you and your family, your wife and kids, and sold you all into slavery, and often you never saw your loved ones again. Or what if a man's crops failed? How was he going to provide for his family? Well, the answer was he could put himself in servitude to another who would pay him so that he could either work the debt off or provide for his family in times of famine or when crops failed. He wasn't a slave as we think of a slave in the classic American thinking kind of a sense. He was more of an indentured servant. An indentured, he had rights, and the servitude was only allowed for six years. Look at verse 1, Exodus 21, verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. So if you were a Hebrew and you owed a debt to another Hebrew, you could enter into this arrangement with him. 
to be an indentured servant. Uh, it would only last six years max, and then the person you owed the debt to was required by God to set you free and forgive you the remaining portion of the debt. Again, this was really not slavery, but voluntary servitude. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, They were not slaves, as we usually think of, of the term, but something more like apprentices, hired hands, or indentured uh, laborers. They lived in the master's home, uh, where they worked hard in exchange for room, board, and an honest wage, end quote. Understand, guys, that involuntary slavery was forbidden by God. All you have to do is look at verse 16 where God instituted the death penalty for slave traders. He said, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, surely he shall surely be put to death. Right there, God was saying, if anyone kidnaps a man to sell him into slavery, that man is to be put to death. So God absolutely forbid involuntary slavery and dealt with it in the harshest terms, uh, or the harshest punishment possible capital crime this verse verse 16 i pretty much rules out the whole institution of slavery as it was practiced in africa and in the west and is still practiced today in many parts of the world of forced slavery and that's why i say guys that when the bible deals with the subject of masters and servants it has little to do with the kind of slavery that saw black africans kidnapped by slave traders and brought to america that was a flagrant violation of the law of god Another major difference between servitude in Israel and most other forms of slavery is that in Israel, not only was the servitude temporary, as I said, six years max, but also when Hebrew slaves were set free, this is, you got to understand this, when Hebrew slaves, they worked now six years, right? They were set free at the beginning of the seventh year, but when they were set free in the seventh year, they were not to be sent away empty-handed. Instead, their masters were required to give them everything they needed to make a new start. Turn to Deuteronomy 15. I love this. Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 12. We read, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him or her go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. In other words, you were required back then to help your fellow Jew get a fresh start, get back on their feet, okay? This is why... We talk about slavery in Jewish culture. It really wasn't much like the slavery we think of that we remember in our history in America. I like what one historian said about this. He said, and I quote, This proves that the biblical form of slavery had a constructive purpose. It was for the benefit of the servant as well as the master. By selling themselves to other members of the covenant community, debtors became members of, of stable households, where their needs were met and where they could get on-the-job training. They learned how to work in the context of a family. This was all in preparation for their ultimate freedom. Thus, slavery had a redemptive purpose. Its goal was not perpetual bondage, but responsible independence. The Hebrew servant was bound for freedom, end quote. And the idea is that, okay, uh, a man has gotten himself into debt. 
And so he sells himself to another to be a slave, to work it off, right? Well, how did he get into debt? Did he mismanage his money? Maybe he did not, nobody ever taught him how to handle money. A wealthy family, probably part of it was because they were good stewards. A wealthy man was maybe a businessman. He knew how to handle money. So the idea was not only was this, was this guy serving you, you were paying him for his services, but also he was receiving kind of an apprentice training program to help him become a better steward uh, with God's money so that when he got out or when he worked his time off, he'd go back into society and be a productive member, wouldn't get himself in all these financial problems. These laws had so many different components to them that we see how God was using them in a very wise way to teach a lot of lessons on, on responsibility and so on. Now, of course, in modern societies, guys, there are welfare programs to help the poor. Uh, the government has put into place debt restructuring laws to help, laws to help people pay back their debt, uh, and even bankruptcy laws to wipe out debt altogether and give a person a fresh start. So there is no more need for the kind of temporary slavery laws that Israel had back then. But at that time, in that culture, these things were important, all right? And uh, as we're going to see in just a moment, in many ways, um, they provided, how can I put it, a job for life. Bear with me. Verse 3, so a guy sells himself into slavery to work off a debt. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. After he has worked the six years, if he uh, only comes to the master himself alone, then he goes out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be your masters, and he shall go out by himself. Well, okay, uh, I, I do think that's fair. If the master had a, a woman that belonged to him and he gave it to this guy when he joined his employment, uh, the wife then still was a property of the of the master and so on. He could go out if he you know he came in uh, by himself, but then got married as he was there. Uh, he could go out at the end of the six years, but she and the kids had to stay. Uh, some people say, well, isn't God trying to break up families then? Well, no, the guy didn't have to go out. We'll see that in a second. But as somebody pointed out, look, the guy possibly had to put himself into the role of an indentured servant because he had mismanaged money. If the whole family was allowed to go out with him back into society, maybe he, had, he hadn't really learned how to handle money yet. And then the whole family would suffer. This way, at least the master would hold on to the wife and kids to let this guy see if he can make it on his own. And then down the road, he could probably redeem them from the master for money as he got back on his feet. All right? But it was pretty straightforward up to this point. Then starting in verse... Five, we read, But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, the door of the house, to the doorpost of the house, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. This is what is known as the law of the bond slave. The law of the bond slave. A bond slave was someone who voluntarily placed him or herself into slavery to another for the rest of their life. 
Once again, the goal of life is not to find freedom, it's to find the right master. The goal of life is really not to find freedom, it's to find the right master. In fact, when you find Jesus Christ and became his bond slave, which means a voluntary slave for life, then and only then do you find true freedom. I mean, I think most of us here can attest to this. I know I can. Before we received Jesus as our master, we thought we had freedom, didn't we? And, I, you know, I'm not going to tell you everything I did before I got saved. I, I'm ashamed of everything I did, okay? But I know that many of us, before we knew Christ, I mean, we partied, we drank, we took drugs, slept around, right? I mean, we did all these things in the name of freedom. In fact, we used to laugh at Christians, maybe, because we thought they were in bondage. We thought, how ridiculous. They can't have fun. I can go out and drink. I can go out and party. I can sleep around. But Christians, they're stuck. They can't do anything to have fun. We did all that in the name of freedom. However, at one point, by God's grace, he began to open our eyes. And we discovered that what we thought was freedom was really cruel bondage. A bondage that was slowly destroying us. And so one day, as God began to open our eyes to the reality that we didn't have freedom, we were so enslaved to the devil. What we were doing in the name of freedom was bringing us deeper and deeper into bondage and destruction. And so we came to Jesus Christ one day, and basically, without saying these exact words, but this was the, the intent of our heart. Lord, I've been the master of my life all these years. I did whatever I wanted. I drank. I took drugs. I partied. I had sex with whoever would have sex with me. I did it all in the name of freedom, and nobody could tell me otherwise. But now I realize that the only master that can give me true freedom is you, Lord. So please, take me to your house and pin me. That was the idea behind taking the servant to the doorpost of the house and taking it all and piercing his ear. You were symbolically pinning him to that house for the rest of his life. And then, of course, what they did was they removed the all, put a gold ring in your ear. And that became a testimony wherever you went that your master was an incredible man because you were a free man at one point and you voluntarily placed yourself in lifetime slavery to him to stay in his house for the rest of your life. That was an incredible testimony to what kind of master you had. The early church loved that illustration. And that's why every one of the New Testament writers would start started their epistles. You know, uh, Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Uh, James, a bondslave of Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Christ. They all loved that because they all saw that that's exactly where they were coming from. They had been free men. Although they were in bondage to the devil, we thought we were free. We were really just the slaves of Satan. But now we have voluntarily placed ourselves in servitude to a master who controls us, but in the process has given us more freedom than we've ever known. The freedom to do what's right. The freedom to do what's right. And all the joy and the health that comes with it. But you know what? Jesus is our example. And Jesus was the ultimate example of this very thing. Turn to Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. You can read the whole thing on your own. And at one point in Psalm 40, verse 6, 
He is speaking to the Father. He says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have what? Opened. The Hebrew is digged, like you would dig an awl in someone's ear. Jesus Christ was the perfect bond slave to the Father. Philippians 2, verse 7, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So our Savior was the ultimate example of someone who gave up his right. What was his right? To be worshipped in heaven, in glory. He laid that aside to become one of us, a servant, to die on the cross that we all might have forgiveness of sins. Well, back to Exodus 21, verse 7. We're still talking about the subject of slavery and the laws that govern it in the Old, Tef Old Covenant. Uh, Exodus 21, verse 7. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. In other words, she shall not go free at the beginning of the seventh year like a man. Why? The context seems to suggest she doesn't go free at the beginning of the seventh year because the master who bought her had betrothed her to himself as either a concubine or a wife. Now, the betrothal period uh, in Jewish culture was different from the engagement period in our culture. Uh, during the Jewish betrothal period, the couple were considered legally married, and yet they didn't consummate the marriage yet. They didn't live together, sleep together, none of that. Usually what happened, although not all the time, but if they were a young couple, uh, they would be betrothed, so they were legally married in the eyes of the state, basically. But then they didn't consummate the marriage, didn't live together. He had to go back to his father's house, usually, and build them a wedding chamber, a bridal chamber, I should say, uh, or a, um, an apartment, really. It was usually built onto the father's house. And of course, as the kids, the sons, uh, got married, they would build onto their father's main house. And so you wound up having a courtyard, basically, because all these apartments would circle around, basically. And they were all attached to the father's house. Why the father's house? Because that's where the boy's inheritance was. And so that's where they had to stay close to. That was their land, and they would receive that uh, when the father died. And it was a part of the family farm and the family ranch and so on. So, uh, But it didn't always work that way because if you were older, let's say like a, a master here, maybe his dad was long dead. Uh, he was a well-to-do man, all right? Uh, but they would still enter into this betrothal period. And often it would last several months. And um, it was a time where they would, you know, I think make sure that this is the person they really wanted to officially marry, even though they were legally considered married by this time. But um, during this time, if a man decided uh, to break things off and not go through the wedding ceremony, which, was, which would officially cement the marriage, uh, if he decided, I, you know what, I, I don't want to go through with this, uh, he would have to divorce his wife because they were legally married. And uh, if either bride or groom should die before the wedding ceremony, she would be considered a widow and he a widower because, again, that's how they looked at the betrothal period in Jewish culture. They were technically married without the consummation. And that's what happened after the official marriage ceremony took place. He would take his bride into the bridal chamber and they would consummate the marriage and so on. They would be then officially and totally married. But let me just say this with regard to verse 7. It seems harsh that a father would sell his daughter to be a slave to another man. 
But listen to me again, think culturally now. Some fathers saw it as the best course of action for the welfare of their daughters. Uh, let me read to you what one author says. He gives some cultural insight into this uh, cultural point of view. He said, and I quote, to understand these laws, it is necessary to know the cultural context. While we do not have all the details uh, we might like, we know enough to recognize that these laws had a benevolent purpose. The man who sold his daughter was not trying to get rid of her, but to improve her prospects in life. What this verse describes was really a form of arranged marriage, which, however strange it may sound to most Americans, has been common in many parts of the world for most of human history. A poor man would send his daughter to a rich man in the hope that she would become a permanent member of his household. She entered into a conditional form of servitude, hoping that eventually she might marry the master or the master's son, end quote. So you can understand in that culture, if you were poor, you didn't have a lot of options to uh, lift yourself out of that poverty like we have in America. So if you're a father, you want to do something for your daughters, especially because the boys stayed at the family farm. But if you could do something for your daughters to help them uh, elevate their lot in life, you would try to marry them off to a rich man. And often how that started was to sell her into slavery to that man. And if she pleased him, if she was a good worker, she was pretty, and he liked her, he would possibly then uh, propose to her or would take her as a concubine or a wife. Verse 8, If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. Now, let me just put this verse in the order that I believe actually the Lord meant it to be in that will clarify, you know, not to confuse, all right? I think it reads this way. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed since he has dealt deceitfully with her. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. So the idea is if after he betrothes her to himself, if he decides that, you know, he doesn't want to go through with this deal. He doesn't want to go through the wedding ceremony to finalize the marriage to this gal. Uh, then he needs to let her be redeemed by her family and set free, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. In other words, he promised to marry her, but then he, marry her, but then he backed out. We would call it breach of promise, all right? Uh, she was promised that she would be his wife. He decided not to do that. So as compensation then, he had to let her relatives come and redeem her, which was buy her back from him and take her home. And God absolutely forbid, guys, his people from selling a fellow Jew to foreigners to be slaves, since, listen, the foreigners would not treat the Jewish person with the same kind of kindness and respect that God mandated uh, Jewish masters treated Jewish slaves with in his law. So, you know, you didn't want to, because you sold a Jew to foreigners, well then, you know, the laws of God didn't, didn't apply and they were mistreated just like the Jews were in Egypt. And God wanted to prevent that. Verse 9, And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal, well, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he, the son, takes another wife, in addition to this wife, we'll say, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. If he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. 
So here we have a situation. And a lot of commentators aren't quite sure exactly what is being said. Let me just tell you what I think is going on, okay? Here we have a situation where the master is so pleased with this young handmaid, young uh, maidservant, that he gives her to his son to be his wife. But, and I'm speaking hypothetically, but being a wealthy family, maybe down the road the son falls for another woman who comes from another wealthy family, and they get married. So now the son's got two wives. It was very common, polygamy back then. He's got two wives, uh, a slave wife and a wealthy, we'll say, free wife. Now, God is saying that the slave wife, who is no longer the favored wife, she's no longer the favored wife because she's now competing with this other gal, she cannot be treated like she was no longer the man's wife. She can't be demoted and treated like she's just an unmarried servant girl once again. She was to maintain all the rights of a wife. Isn't it sad how God has to condescend to us because he knows our hearts? He's got to make provision for all these things. It's just the wisdom of God. As I read through God's law, I'm just taken back at how utterly wise he is and fair fair but you know god is saying look if you marry a gal she's a, a, a servant girl a slave girl you marry her but then down the road because you know you're from a wealthy family you find another gal maybe she's from another wealthy family you like her more you marry her you can't treat the first wife like she's just a servant slave unmarried slave girl again you have got to god said man give her all the rights of a wife. She still has to have the same food and clothing allotted to her as she's always had as his wife. And she was not to be deprived of sexual privileges that belong to a wife, which of course led to the birth of children. You see, in that culture, for a woman to go childless was a great tragedy and a social stigma, okay? It was a terrible thing for a woman to go childless in that culture. Now, we know that David, because he didn't like what his wife Michal said to him, how she kind of mocked him and put him down and so on, uh, it says that David, he, he forced her to be like a widow for the rest of her life. In other words, he didn't see her, he didn't have any relations with her, and she went childless. That was a cruel thing to do. Uh, David was, could be heartless at times, okay? And God is saying, look, you are to treat this gal like you did before you married this other woman. She is still your wife. You're not to demote her. You're still to give, make sure she's got the same kind of food to eat, the same clothes you were giving her before, and you're not to deprive her of the sexual uh, privileges that go along with marriage because she is to be able to have children, and so on. And God said that if a husband doesn't continue to do these three things for her, food, clothing, which also would include shelter, you know, she was protected from the elements and sexual privileges if he didn't do these continue to do these three things for her then she was to be set free to return to her family listen without having to be redeemed with money by her relatives that was her compensation if he demoted her and treated her differently wouldn't provide the food the clothing and the uh, sexual privileges then he was to let her go free back to her family and the family didn't have to pay anything to redeem her is the idea now we get into a section that deals with laws concerning violence. Verse 12, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. What's in view here is premeditated murder. 
And notice God didn't qualify it with any mitigating circumstances, okay? Well, yeah, he killed the guy in cold blood, but you know what? He had a rough childhood. Uh, you know, when he cried, his mommy didn't pick him up quick enough or feed him fast enough. He's got a lot of damage, so therefore he can't be held responsible. You know, the victim mentality, right? He can't really be held responsible, therefore he shouldn't be found guilty or he should get a lighter sentence and get out in the 10 years or whatever. Instead of, you know, this is what we see going on in our society today. What did God say? God was very direct. If a person plans and carries out the murder of another person, that person is to be put to death, period, end of subject. No mitigating circumstance. Somewhere along the way, our country has gotten so messed up with regard to this kind of thinking. They, they read something like this in the Bible and they freak out and have a cow, you know? <laughs> God is so cruel. How could you, you know? If we had these laws today, you would have a nation of very little crime. Very little crime. We'll see that as we go. But um, today it's like, you know, forget about the victim. The perpetrator is now a victim. I mean, there are people rushing so fast to vindicate uh, and, and, and excuse the perpetrator by turning him or her into a victim that the real victim gets lost in the shuffle somewhere. Verse 13 However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, interesting way to put that, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. Now, this is talking about manslaughter, what we would call manslaughter. There are two basic kinds of manslaughter, voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter is often called a heat of passion crime. In other words, if you come home one day and you find your wife in bed with another man, you could become so upset in the heat of the moment that you could kill this guy and a court might find you guilty, not of murder, but of voluntary manslaughter. You lost it, okay? You, you intended to kill him, but it wasn't premeditated. I mean, you just walked in, there they were, you lost it. You still killed the guy, but it was not a premeditated thing where you planned it out and you know, that kind of thing, all right? Involuntary manslaughter often refers to unintentional homicide from criminally negligent or reckless conduct. Now, I'm not an attorney. I would imagine that it would include somebody getting drunk, getting behind the wheel of a car, and then killing somebody, all right? They didn't intend to kill somebody, but by their reckless conduct, someone still died at their hands. Now, in a court of law, uh, they might be found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, which carries with it a lot lesser penalty than premeditated murder, of course. Uh, because again, it wasn't like you had planned it out. There was no uh, malice aforethought. It wasn't a premeditated thing where you planned to hurt this person, but you still did it. I mean, you're still responsible, right? You're still guilty of taking another person's life, even though it wasn't a premeditated thing. Now listen, in Israel, if somebody killed a member of your family, the oldest son in the family was designated to be, listen, the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood. And he would be honor-bound to avenge his dead relative's life by killing the person who killed his family member. And guys, this would even apply to an accident, all right? I'll give you an example. You're out in the woods with a friend, right? You're cutting down a tree. He's standing not far from you, you're talking. 
And you bring the axe back to take another chop at the tree, and the axe head flies off, hits your friend, and the, and the head will say, kills him. All right, A total accident. Total accident. Um, but the avenger of blood would still come after you. Because a family member was killed at your hands. Even though they didn't differentiate between accidents uh, in these uh, avengers of blood. All right, uh, You know, you were guilty of killing a family member regardless of the circumstances. The avenger of blood would uh, still come after you. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Well, here in verse 13, God said he would appoint a place for the person uh, to flee to for, for safety. Well, he eventually established these places. They were eventually called cities of refuge. Turn to Numbers 35. And please bear with me because as I was reading the commentators, many of them said around this time people start dozing off. Boring, okay? You know, it's all this legal stuff. I find it fascinating because I see God's wisdom and how he was dealing with his people, okay? You may not see it that way. I just ask you to bear with me. God said in Exodus 21, 13, if you kill somebody accidentally, I'm going to provide a place for you to flee to to find safety. And later he did in Numbers 35, starting in verse 11. Then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the man, a manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan. Now, at this time, they're still in the wilderness. So the land of Canaan would have been to the west of them. And God is saying at this point, you know, when you come into the land, I'm going to have you uh, establish these six cities of refuge. Three on one side of the Jordan, three on the promised land side, the land of Canaan side, and three on the wilderness side. Interesting. Why three on the wilderness side of the Jordan? Because you remember that two and a half tribes didn't cross over the Jordan to possess land. It was Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh. So we got a lot of livestock. And this land uh, to the east of the Jordan, man, that's good grazing land. We want to inherit this land. And Moses said, the only way you can do that is if you cross over, fight with your brethren to dispossess the Canaanites. And after you uh, have taken the land in conquest, then you can cross over again and settle on the east side of the Jordan River. So here's what God did. He established these six cities of refuge, and he strategically placed them on both sides of the Jordan in such a way that you were never more than 10 miles, a day's journey, from one of these cities. That was the idea. Uh, they had to be within running distance, okay? 10 miles, that's a, that's a long way to run. I couldn't do it in one day, but, you know, there's a lot of folks, that's all they did was run, and not for exercise. That's just how they got around. Um, but you were never more than a day's journey, 10 miles, from one of these cities, uh, no matter where you lived, on either side of the Jordan River, if you were one of the Jewish people. And um, these cities, guys, were only for people who had committed manslaughter or had accidentally killed someone. Listen to me. The cities of refuge were definitely not for anyone who had committed premeditated murder. There was no mercy for that crime. In Exodus 21, verse 14, we read, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. What is that talking about? They had a practice. 
if they had done something that warranted some harsh penalty or judgment, often they would run to the altar of sacrifice. Remember the horns on the altar? And they would use the horns to tie the animal to the altar of sacrifice, okay? Uh, they would run and grab hold of the horns of the altar as an act of, God, I, I ask for mercy, you know? And, and that was a common thing, you know? Grab the horns of the altar is a way of saying you, you were, you know, pleading for mercy. And God is saying, if somebody kills somebody through premeditated murder, I don't care if they're grabbing under the horns of my altar or not. You take them out of there, you kill them. There is no mercy for a person like that. So listen, if you killed someone accidentally and the avenger of blood was hot on your trail, if you could make it to one of these cities of refuge before he got to you, he couldn't touch you. You were safe as long as you stayed within the walls of the city. I mean, he could hang outside the walls of the city, wait for you to come out, and he'd kill you. He just couldn't go into the city to kill you. As long as you stayed inside, you were safe. Now, the first thing the elders did, when you got there, okay, and they know that you were a refugee, you were fleeing from something. The first thing the elders did uh, upon your arrival was to question you about the circumstances that led to the death of the person you had killed. They would interrogate you. And if they did indeed determine that it wasn't premeditated murder, you'd be allowed to stay in the city for protection. If, on the other hand, the elders of the city determined that it was a premeditated act that led to someone's death, they would turn you over to the avenger of blood and he would kill you. Now, the interesting thing about this, you know, everything points to Jesus, right? In that very Psalm, Psalm 40, what is it, verse 7? The volume of the book, it's written of me. Everything in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, points to Jesus in type, shadow, picture, and so on. The interesting thing about this was you had to stay inside the city if you wanted to be safe from the avenger of blood until the high priest died. You say, why? Well, God mandated that when the high, you stayed there as long as, you know, as long as you stayed in the city, you were safe. But when the high priest died, whoever was high priest at that time, whenever he died, then you were free to go home, and the avenger of blood couldn't touch you. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't until our high priest died that we could go home to the Father's house, and the judgment would not touch us. Again, these cities of refuge were a picture of Christ, our place of safety from the sword of judgment. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer talks about how we fled to Christ for refuge from coming judgment. And the idea, of course, is he's talking about fleeing to Christ for refuge. He was drawing on this picture how these cities of refuge were really a type of Christ or a, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, uh, how we fled to Jesus. He is our city of refuge, our strong tower, the righteous run into him and are safe. He's picking up on that from the Old Testament cities of refuge, right? However, there was a crucial distinction, don't miss this, between Jesus and these Old Testament cities of refuge. The cities of refuge only helped the innocent, okay? Those who had accidentally killed someone. Jesus is our place of refuge, listen, where the guilty can flee to find safety and security from judgment. Every one of us who have taken refuge in Christ we are all guilty sinners. The soul that sin shall surely die, we are all worthy of death and judgment. 
Aren't we thankful that Jesus is not just for the innocent? There are none who are innocent. He is for the sinner, the transgressor, the guilty. We can all run to him, no matter what you've done. Where sin abounds, Paul said, grace abounds much more. There is no sin so great that God's grace can't forgive. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest, right? Anyone who comes to me, I will in no ways cast them out or turn them away. He doesn't say, unless you did this sin, or unless you were really bad. He says, come. It's a universal invitation to all mankind. He doesn't qualify by saying, you know, but if you were really bad and you killed people, you can't come, no. Any sinner, no matter what they have done, can come to Jesus for safety and um, security. But listen to me. It was the responsibility of the person to flee to one of these cities of refuge. It was their responsibility. I mean, in other words, his safety wasn't automatic simply because a place of safety existed. There are people that think that because Jesus Christ provided a way for all people to be saved, then God is going to save all people automatically. It's called universalism. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus said, come to me, right? He's not going to force anybody into heaven. He's inviting us to come. And same with these cities of refuge. Look, they weren't automatic safety for a person who had uh, you know, accidentally killed somebody. That person had to actually flee to one of these cities and enter into it before he would be safe and so on. Outside the city there was death. Inside the city there was life and safety. The same, again, is true with Jesus, whom we are commanded to flee to, to escape the wrath or the judgment to come. In him alone is life and safety. Outside of Christ there is judgment and death. I think I read this to you um, a few years ago. I was listening, uh, I was reading, I wasn't listening to D.L. Moody's sermon, he was, he's not around, but I was reading one of his sermons, and it was a sermon called, What Must I Do to Be Saved? So he was preaching this evangelistic sermon, and he uses the city of refuge as an illustration. I just thought it was so powerful, I want to read it to you, okay? Uh, he said, now for my illustration. Suppose I have killed a man. I am out away in the woods working, and my axe slips out of my hand and kills the man I am working with. I know that his kinsman, his brother, is not far away. The news will soon reach him that I have killed his brother. What shall I do? I start for the city of refuge. Over there, away on the hill, ten miles off, I run. And we are told that in those days there used to be signposts with the word refuge written on it in great red letters so that a man might read as he ran. He need not stop. I have also been told that there was a finger pointing toward the city, and a man who could not read at all might see the hand. A man does not have to learn to read before he can be saved. I see that hand. It is pointing to the city of refuge. The gate is wide open, but it's ten miles away. I leap over the highway. I do not look behind, to the right or to the left. I do not listen to this man or to that man. But like John Bunyan, I put my fingers in my ears. I just, I'm focusing on that city of refuge. The avenger has drawn his sword and is on my track. I leap over the highway and... Pretty soon I can hear him behind me. Away I go, over that bridge, across that stream, up that mountain, along that valley. But I can hear him coming nearer and nearer. There is the watchman. I can see him on the wall of the city. He gives notice to the inhabitants that a refugee is coming. 
I see the citizens on the wall of the city, watching. And when I get near, I hear them calling, run, run, escape, escape. He is very near you, run, escape. I press on, I leap through the gate of the city, and at last I am safe. One minute I am outside, the next minute I am inside. One minute I am exposed to that sword, it may come down upon me at any minute, the next minute I am safe. Do you feel any difference? I am behind the walls. That is the difference. It is a fact. There I am. The avenger can come up to the gates of the city, but he cannot come in. He cannot lay his sword upon me. The law of the land shields me now. I am under the protection of that city. I have saved my life, but I had no time for lingering. A great many of you are trying to get into the city of refuge, and there are enemies trying to stop you, but do not listen to them. Your friends tell you to escape. Make haste. Delay not for a single moment, end quote. Well, you have to understand the day Moody lived in. God was really working. And many people, unbelievers, were deeply burdened about their relationship with God and whether or not they were going to be facing eternal judgment when they died. This was on so many people's hearts and minds. It's amazing. So when he says, you know, that your friends are trying to get you to come to God, to Christ, the city of refuge. Don't let anybody else distract you. I wish it was like that today. That that many people were that passionate about, you know, getting their, you know, come on, come on, come to Christ, and so on. We don't see that a lot today. Uh, let me just end with this. Just revisiting for a second. This whole idea of the avenger of blood and the city of refuge. Think about this. Who is the one after us with the sword who will take vengeance upon us in judgment someday if we don't come to Christ? Jesus Christ. John 5, the Father judges no man but has given all judgment over to the Son. So Jesus Christ is really the avenger of blood who is in one sense our judge, the one who will destroy us someday the wrath of god abides on us right but who is the city of refuge it's jesus <laughs> so he is both judge and savior think about that and guys that is exactly the role that jesus will play to every person who has ever lived he will either be their righteous judge or their loving savior right now he is pursuing us the holy spirit is to bring us to Christ. And when we enter into Christ by faith, the wrath of God no longer abides on us. We are safe in the beloved one. He protects us. We are safe from coming judgment. But here's the thing. God wants everyone to receive his son, that he might be to them a loving savior. Many people will not have Jesus as their loving savior. In fact, I think it was um, C.S. Lewis who wrote the book, The Great Divorce. And I wasn't talking about marriage. The gist of it was that we, we have the opportunity, like Jesus in the garden, to say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And if we surrender ourselves to the will of God to become his servants by faith, freely, and we say to him, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. You're my master. I live for your, your will. 
but it indicates a heart that has been given to Christ who has been redeemed. C.S. Lewis said, Someday, though, all the rebels who refuse to come to Christ will stand before the Father. Stand before Jesus, I should say. And Jesus will say to them, Do you know how badly I wanted you to be mine? Do you know how much I pursued you? How I tried to warn you to flee from the wrath to come? That I loved you, I died for you, and so on. But you didn't want my will. My will was to save you. Now, not my will be done, but your will be done. You didn't want anything to do with me in life. Now, I can't have anything to do with you in heaven. And so, Jesus Christ becomes that person's righteous judge. Not because he didn't want to be their loving Savior, but because they refused to allow him to be their loving Savior. And this is the thing, guys. It depends on us. It depends on us. Uh, what role Jesus is going to be to us um, forever, either a loving Savior or a righteous judge. So the city of refuge, an incredible picture of the safety in our Lord Jesus Christ, safe from judgment because in Christ all of our sins are washed away and the judgment of God passes over us because we are safely in Christ. So we'll pick it up next week in verse 15, God willing. And again, we will begin to move now quicker. And uh, so uh, hang in there. I don't want to lose you. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are struck by the incredible wisdom, fairness of your law. But Lord, a law that is also tempered with mercy. Uh, we know in the new covenant, even the murderer can find forgiveness in Christ. So, Lord, we thank you that none of us are so bad that your grace isn't sufficient to save us, redeem us, and make us brand new. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness. We thank you for opening our eyes. And, uh, Lord, we know that a lot of these laws do not apply to us anymore, but the wisdom of treating each other rightly, kindly, fairly, uh, with integrity, that is something we always should do as your people. So give us grace to do that, Lord, to one another. We ask all this now in your precious name. Amen.